democracy is in some ways a trust exercise, right? We all go into it together and we make an agreement with each other that we are going to trust each other enough to hold an election and if we lose, to accept the will of the majority. And if you don't trust that anymore, if the bonds of that trust erode, you just can't have a democracy. It is the underpinning foundation of what it means to live in a society with other people and to democratically elect our leaders. Rosalind Helderman is a politics reporter for The Post. She is one of many journalists in our newsroom who've been reporting on what's happened to the country since January 6th, and especially what's happened to our elections. I feel like I've learned that, like in so much of American life, we sort of live in two worlds. There is this world of people who are taking really seriously the need to hold people accountable for that day. That includes our legal system, where you can see the nation's largest criminal investigation ever happen underway. More than 650 people charged with crimes. For six months, we've been watching the growing number of criminal cases made in the riot on the U.S. Capitol January 6th. More than 500 people have been charged. There's also this world of people who are really traumatized by what happened on that day and are kind of dealing in their own lives with its impact. And then you have this other world where every day what happened on January 6th is being rewritten. It's being retold as a story of patriotism. And in so doing, there's this sort of casual acceptance of mob violence as an acceptable form of political protest that we've never really seen in America and could have really dramatic impacts on how we live going forward. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, November 2nd. On this election day, we talk about what happens when people stop trusting each other in a democracy. And later in the show, we talk about the UN Climate Summit happening right now in Glasgow and how far countries have to go to avoid catastrophic climate change. For Roz Helderman and the many reporters at The Post who've been looking at the effects of January 6th, one of the things they really wanted to understand was how that day changed our democratic process. How a Republican Party that has fallen in line behind Donald Trump's lies is reshaping how we think about and run elections in this country. So we wanted to talk about places like Georgia, where there's been this huge fight over new uh, voting election laws, and places like Arizona, where there's been uh, this ongoing process to recount the 2020 election that has lasted all spring. And the other thing we really wanted to do in this story is we, we didn't want to tell it like a traditional newspaper story. We wanted it to be more of... A kind of cinematic telling to to really bring you into the lives of these people. So what we did is we kind of chose some big subject areas, and then we set out to look for characters, individual people mm. who have lived these stories, whose stories we could tell to kind of tell the story of America. And who are some of the characters that you found? So um, I went out and spent some time in Arizona. I had done a lot of reporting on the Republican commissioned review of the 2020 election. And I went out and met with a bunch of people. Uh, we end up spending quite a bit of time in this story on a guy named Clint Hickman. I have been a Maricopa County supervisor for almost eight years now, probably over eight years now. 
He was last year the chairman of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. He was a big Trump supporter. He's a Republican elected official. You know, I joined the Republican Party in my first vote ever uh, that I marked a line for was Ronald Reagan. He was the only person in the county invited to go meet with Donald Trump on the tarmac when Trump came to Arizona for a rally back in June of 2020. And still, I'm extremely proud that he called me out in the crowd and thanked me for everything that I tried to accomplish for him. Then, after the election, he starts getting these phone calls from the head of the local Republican Party. Hey, Clint, it's Kelly Ward. I just talked to President Trump, and uh, he... He would like me to talk to you. And, and from Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer. Hey, Clint, it's Rudy Giuliani. I was very um, happy to see that there's going to be a forensic audit of the machines. And I really wanted to talk to you about it a bit. The president wanted me to give you a call. All right. And then even from the White House itself. Hello, sir. This is the White House operator. I was calling to let you know that the president's available to take your call if you're free. If you could please give us a call back, sir. That'd be great. You have a good evening. Clint believes that they want to talk to him about the election and ways that he, as a county official, uh, can stop the count, can re-examine the count, to do anything he can to prevent Joe Biden from being declared the winner of the election in Maricopa County, which is going to mean that he wins the election in Arizona. What they wanted to do is not certify the vote. Like, hey, there's something going on. There's enough anomalies going on that stop counting. But he had agreed to certify the election because he could see no problem with the vote that showed that Joe Biden won his very large county. It's the county that includes Phoenix. And so I spent a lot of time with him talking about what that experience was like and what his experience has been like on January 6th and in the months since. And what were those conversations like? What did he tell you? So he had a lot of incredible experiences. So he was this loyal Republican, and the party has completely turned on him. For instance, uh, on January 6th itself, it was the last day he served as chairman of the Maricopa County uh, Board of Supervisors. Uh, They serve year-long terms, and then they go back to just being a normal supervisor instead of the chairman. So he goes to this ceremony, and he hands off the gavel to a colleague, and he's feeling really good about having helped guide the county through this terrible time, and he drives home to his house in the suburbs, and there are sheriff's deputies waiting for him in the driveway. And they say to him, you can't be home tonight. Threats had been called in during this time frame, and they wanted to talk to me about it. And he says, I mean, that's crazy. Of course I can be home tonight. And they say, they're storming the Capitol. And um, I like looked and said, what? And uh, my wife opens the front door and said, are you done talking? You need to come in here and see this. And um, I walked in on the big screen. It was the first things of people beating on the door and breaking the windows. And then Marty said, you're not staying in this house tonight. You please do not stay in this house tonight. And I said, I'm out, I'm out. My wife and I started packing bags Uh, for the kids, and we went to an undisclosed location. And what was his reaction when that happened, when he has people from the sheriff's office saying, it's not safe to be in your house? I mean, he was scared. He was stunned. I'm like looking at this and going, oh my God, 
You know, I, I just a, a year before that, I had, I had toured my family through that building. And I, I just was dumbstruck. Like, and then I rolled into, is this what's going to happen at our own state capitol? I mean, how can people behave like this? What's crazy is the next morning when he wakes up and, you know, the sun comes up and Joe Biden's win has been certified, but this terrible thing has happened in Washington. He has some hope that people will feel stunned like he felt stunned and that the temperature will go down and things will go back to normal. I thought this is a turning point. Now, this is going to be the turning point. Look at these political people. The ones that were shouting the loudest are now muted. The ones that were maybe not speaking up forcefully were. And I thought things were going to get a little bit better. But in fact, what happens is six days later, the Arizona Senate gives his county a subpoena saying, hand over all of the ballots and all of the machines. We are doing our own recount and review. They're demanding that the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors hand over a number of things, including the envelopes mail-in voters sign and drop off their ballots in or digital copies of them. Which is a process that lasts for months and months and months. It only ended in September. And during that time, there are these various rounds where he and his fellow supervisors are accused of obstruction or accused of standing in the way, and he gets terrible death threats. Yes, sir. I just wanted to let you know I happen to have some knowledge of people that are going to be coming and visiting the homes of the uh, Board of Supervisors and basically executing their families. Should be fun. For months and months and months, he gets terrible death threats. We've got a citizens committee, grand jury. We're going to f***ing hang you, traitor. We're going to make an example out of you. Yes. For the world to see the corrupt CCP pile of And he's far from the only election official to get those kinds of horrible death threats. We did an analysis looking at threats received by elections officials all across the country, and we found threats received in at least 17 states. And that was true in swing states like Arizona and Georgia and Michigan, but also in places where the election has been uh, less publicly contested and the winner seems to have been more clear. Let me tell you something, Rob Pitts. I saw what you did. Katie, you better quit getting in the way of this audit. We know now that ballots were double counted. We actually know that... So, Claire, you delivered just the amount of votes needed to cover on November 4th. I really sincerely hope you get what's coming to you, you fraudulent One of the stories we're telling in this piece is a story about how, you know, like a lot of local officials, he has a day job too. He helps run his family business, which is an extremely large egg farm. And in March, there was a terrible fire at his family's egg farm. We have lots to get to tonight, and we start with a massive barn fire in Tonopah. More than a hundred. This is a thing that sometimes happens on farms. There's a lot of dust. There are wooden barns. There's a huge fire. 165,000 hens are killed. All humans are accounted for. But it's a really terrible moment in his life and for his family business. The loss of one hen is catastrophic. So we're we're doing everything we can. Well, while he's standing out there with the firefighters and they're dousing the flames, 
uh, the Gateway Pundit, a right-wing news outlet, posts a story suggesting that maybe he was burning ballots at his farm. And that is a conspiracy theory, completely untrue, totally unfounded. It has persisted uh, for months and months and months. He periodically gets terrible emails and phone calls from people who claim he was burning ballots at his chicken farm. Oh, my gosh. Wait, and what did he think when he saw that blog post that made these allegations against him in this, like, moment of kind of personal crisis? Yeah, he told me that, like, he found it jaw-dropping, that this was, I think he called it their darkest day, and this is what these people were saying. But it also sounds like in those days after January 6th that he was hopeful that that was this, like, turning around moment for the country or that people would have this sense of shock and horror about what had happened at the Capitol and that that would lead to some common ground about what needed to change. I guess for him, how did it feel over those months to see his expectation be so far from the reality that that transpired? Yeah, he told me that he has, in this whole process, kept hoping that he was at the end and that we were at the end as a country. And then those hopes have been dashed so many times that now he thinks we may never get to the end. Uh, It's kind of a depressing coda. A one elected official, local elected official, is not going to be able to beat back that tide that's been unleashed. I just, I just need to do the best I can to live through it and to, and to satisfy the demands of this job and protect, protect the county. The Arizona process actually wrapped up in September. The contractors that were hired to review the election, who uh, were, by all accounts, biased in favor of declaring the election stolen. Nevertheless, they said that the recount showed that Biden actually got more votes in this county than Trump basically confirmed nearly to the exact number what the county had officially certified. But they came up with all kinds of other innuendo and claims of possible problems that the attorney general uh, should investigate. And he told me that he listened to that hearing alone in his office at the chicken farm through his computer and just basically, you know, grew exhausted listening to it and just thought to himself, this is never going to end. What do you feel like you learned from hearing his story? I think that Clint's message is a message that I think is really important for all of us to understand, which is that the election ended a long time ago, but we're going to be living with the lies wrought by Donald Trump about that day for a really long time, that it is extremely hard to inject any level of fact uh, that are going to convince 30 to 40 percent of his supporters that they have been sold lies, which they have, and that there's a real danger to what comes next. Because if you convince people that the system is rigged and you convince people that the country is crumbling and you convince people that elections can't be trusted to fix those things, there's really only one answer to what they do next. And it's not an answer that any of us um, are going to like. What I find so interesting about that line of thinking is that in some ways it makes it seem kind of rational or logical, right? That like if you have gotten to a point where you don't believe in the results of the election, you don't believe that the challenges to those elections have gotten valid results when everything about the election system 
feels phony to you and you don't trust in any way or any recourse to get what you think is the right result, then in some ways it does seem logical that like the only course that is left to you is an actual insurrection. I think one reason it's really important to understand this is that this happened in an election that actually, by all measures used by experts, ran very smoothly and was not particularly close. A mob was summoned and democracy teetered. And we all need to think about what happens next time. What happens when it's not so close? What happens when there are genuine problems as sometimes happen in elections run by humans? What happens under the new regime of laws that are being proposed and passed in multiple states that make it easier for partisans to question elections after they happen? What happens in a world where people just assume that you can't believe an election? And if you can't have an election and trust that people are going to rely on the outcome, that's the path that leads to the end of democracy. And that's the path that... Uh, Some people truly believe we're on right now. And so it's really important to understand the effects of that day. Rosalind Helderman is a political investigations reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Rennie Spranovsky and edited by Ariel Plotnick. Amy Gardner also contributed reporting. And thank you to Aaron Patrick O'Connor. We've included a link in our show notes to The Post's reporting on January 6th and how our country's democratic process has changed because of that day. After the break, we'll talk about the big climate summit happening right now in Europe and what we can expect to come out of it. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Your Royal Highnesses, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen. The six years since the Paris Climate Agreement have been the six hottest years on record. This week is the start of the big UN climate conference known as COP26. Basically, this global gathering of almost 200 countries where Humanity tries to figure out once again how we are going to tackle climate change. That's Sarah Kaplan, climate reporter for The Post. She has been reporting on COP26, which stands for Conference of Parties, this big climate summit in Glasgow where UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres gave a dire call for change. Our addiction to fossil fuels is pushing humanity to the brink. We face a stark choice. Either we stop it or it stops us. And it's time to say enough. So this is supposed to be one of the biggest 
COP conferences. It's coming half a decade after the Paris Agreement, which is where countries really all agreed that they were going to act to try to limit climate change. A few hours ago, we succeeded. We came together around the strong agreement the world needed. We met the moment. This COP is supposed to be like the follow-through COP, where countries have made commitments and now they're going to make good on their promises and really, you know, tighten up their pledges to reduce emissions, decide on the rules for enforcing the Paris Agreement and, and having accountability, and all of the actual real action that is needed to make this pledge to limit warming something that actually happens. But the problem is, almost all these countries that made big commitments in Paris haven't been meeting them. Now they're coming back and facing the fact that they still haven't figured out how to keep those promises from six years ago. And the stakes are higher than ever. We've seen this year this crazy number of really dramatic climate impacts, hurricanes. Wildfires droughts and flash floods. And the UN Secretary General has been saying over and over and over again, and especially now, that like this is the moment. Our planet is changing before our eyes, from the ocean depths to mountain tops, from melting glaciers to relentless extreme weather events. Sea level rise is double the rate it was 30 years ago. Oceans are hotter than ever and getting warmer faster. Recent climate action announcements might give the impression that we are on track to turn things around. This is an illusion. If the world doesn't act at COP26 and doesn't achieve real progress towards making this pledge a reality, then we are going to lose our chance to try to limit warming to the levels that humanity can tolerate and adapt to. You know, as a regular person hearing about this conference and so many of these climate conferences and summits, and I find them all exasperating because you do hear these dire warnings. We're reaching this point of no return. And yet, like nothing is actually happening or I feel very skeptical about about whether this conference is going to result in any changes. You are definitely not alone in feeling that way, Martine. I mean, these conferences, the world has been gathering for these meetings since the early 1990s and emissions keep going up, right? Like the curve is not bending in the right direction in 2019, like greenhouse gas emissions from around the globe were at their highest point ever. And so a lot of people say like, you know, what is the point of these meetings? Um, they're clearly not sufficient to drive action. And that's true. They are clearly not sufficient because we're not going in the right direction. Um, but I think that there have been some really important things achieved at these COP meetings you know, the Paris Agreement that was signed in 2015, where countries all agreed to try to limit warming to well below two degrees Celsius, that agreement really sort of created standards and metrics and numbers that we've all been talking about since then, right? I mean, not just national governments, but businesses, when they say that they are going to make 
like a net zero pledge, for example, that language really came from what was negotiated in the Paris Agreement. And it also, even if a country is making promises and not following through, like the fact that they've made a promise is a lot of activists say, you know, it kind of creates a basis for accountability. So when you think of countries that have not hit the targets that they previously (laughs) promised to hit, I mean, chief on my list of countries is the U.S. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. And so how has President Biden been navigating this conference and basically talking about the fact that the U.S. is pretty far away from what they promised to do in Paris? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. Um, There's this, you know, big elephant in the room of the fact that the U.S. has been basically gone from international climate diplomacy for the last four years because that was not a priority of the Trump administration. And President Biden apologized for the U.S. leaving the Paris Agreement. And I I guess I shouldn't apologize, but I do apologize for the fact the United States... uh, the last administration pulled out of the Paris Accords and put us sort of behind people. But he and his administration have been very adamant in saying that the U.S. is back. We are taking all these actions. The United States will be able to meet the ambitious target I set in the Leaders' Summit in Climate back in April, reducing U.S. emissions by 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. There are hundreds of representatives from the U.S. at COP in Glasgow right now. And, you know, just last week, the Biden administration presented this framework for spending on climate and a bunch of other social policies that they say is going to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by more than a gigaton by the end of the decade which is not all the way to having emissions, which is what the Biden administration has pledged they're going to do by 2030, but it's definitely progress. And so I think that, you know, Biden's job is really to communicate that the U.S. is serious about um, taking climate action and try to use that to cajole other countries into also increasing their commitments. And it kind of remains to be seen whether or not people are going to take him at his word and trust the U.S. Exactly, because I think everyone else in that room reads news about U.S. politics and knows that Biden right now hasn't proven that he's capable of, like, passing any sweeping legislation on climate change. So I would imagine that that makes it harder for other countries to feel beholden to their promises if the U.S. is at this point where it's really up in the air whether we're actually going to make significant progress. Yeah. And I think, you know, even beyond just the domestic policies that get passed in the U.S., the other thing that I've been hearing again and again, especially from folks in the developing world, is that the U.S. and wealthy countries writ large have not followed through on their promises to, you know, help create change beyond their borders, right? Like it's one thing for the U.S. to say we're going to spend money on switching to renewable energy and helping people get electric vehicles and all of these things. But wealthy countries have also promised to start delivering $100 billion a year in climate finance to help vulnerable countries 
get off of fossil fuels and adapt to climate impacts. And that was supposed to start happening last year. And so far, they have not followed through. And the latest Mm. announcement from these wealthy countries is that they're not actually going to deliver on their climate finance commitments until at least 2023. And so if you are in a developing country like India and a major economy that emits a lot, but also has a growing population that wants to achieve, you know, the kinds of standards of living that are common in the global north. People who want to buy cars and be able to have AC running in their house and that like those are the things that are contributing to climate change, but also are things that are, you know, signifiers of being middle class and having made it. Yeah, totally. And, you know, you hear wealthy countries that built their wealth on fossil fuels, right, that have caused the majority of warming that has occurred up to this point, telling you, you can't use the same resources to build Mm -hmm. your wealth and establish a high standard of living for your citizens that we got to use for our citizens. Like, Places like India especially are kind of like, why should we make sacrifices that the global north has not had to make and is now not even helping us make? Friends, On Monday, India, which is, you know, one of the world's biggest emitters, they submitted their plan for reducing emissions. They're called these nationally determined contributions. They're kind of like voluntary and said that they are planning to hit net zero emissions by 2070, which is definitely not compatible with the targets that were laid out in the Paris Agreement or with what climate, you know, advocates for climate action have said are necessary in order to avert the worst effects of warming. And the 2070 is basically too late. Yeah, it's too late. What about China? Because I know China is such a major emitter. What have they said at this conference? And are they trying or at least closer to keeping their promises? Yeah. So China is the world's biggest source of greenhouse gases right now. Um, Obviously, historically, if you look at the amount of greenhouse gas that's ever been added to the atmosphere, it's really the U.S. and Europe that are the biggest sources. But per year at the moment, it's China. And there's a variety of messages that China has been sending. On the one hand, Xi Jinping is not coming to this conference. He delivered his remarks virtually. And China has also said that they are not planning to reach net zero until 2060, which is later than a lot of climate advocates say is necessary. And that's what scientists really say is necessary. On the other hand, China has also pledged to stop international financing for coal, which is a, you know, a big change because they are one of the biggest financiers for coal production and coal is such a polluting source of energy. And and what are your questions about what is all going to play out? I mean, I think sometimes it's helpful to think about climate change like a math problem, right? Like scientists have laid out this, you know, very basic, unavoidable math of like how the planet works, how much the planet is going to heat up if we emit a certain amount. And the like, (laughs) the question for countries is like, are we going to pass the test of actually doing what the math requires? Right now, all of the commitments that have been submitted by countries in terms of reducing emissions 
don't add up to what's required. They add up to something like 2.7 degrees Celsius, which is mm-hmm. around five degrees Fahrenheit. And that would be a catastrophic level of warming for people around the globe. Millions of people would suffer. Millions of people would die. There would be food shortages and water shortages. And, you know, the the, the math is not going to change in the next two weeks. Countries are not going to update their commitments in the next two weeks. It's just the reality of how these things work. But they could sort of make commitments that they're going to be working harder on this math and faster than they have been. Maybe there's not going to be a broad international agreement to do what's required, but there can be some of these smaller alliances or groups announcing that they're going to make changes that can kind of help like set the stage on the broader global community. So we're starting to see countries saying that they are going to wean themselves off of oil and gas entirely. You know, that's not a global agreement. But if you can get some countries, even if they're small, they can also sort of set a high standard and start putting pressure for the rest of the world to catch up. Sarah Kaplan is a climate reporter for The Post. The segment was produced by Alexis Diao. On Tuesday, the Biden administration and 90 other countries unveiled a sweeping new set of policies to cut emissions of methane, a key greenhouse gas. Still, scientists say that these pledges fall short of preventing catastrophic climate change. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon. On tomorrow's show, you'll hear about the outcome of Tuesday's election and how voters felt about it. What is it about the Republican candidate that worries you when it comes to democracy? His affiliation with Trump. What about you, sir? The same thing. Uh, January 6th said it all in terms of Republicans in the Senate. You'll hear more of that on Wednesday's episode. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.